Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, the mission of Georgia State's Create program and how it aims to build better and more equitable schools through resources for teachers. There is going to be support, whether it's check-ins, weekly check-ins with a mentor. There's lots of programs where we are doing our own work for checking our own biases to make sure that we step into the classroom as someone who's self-aware of their biases, self-aware of their intersecting identities, and are bringing that into the classroom as well. That conversation coming up in just a moment. But first, this from our WABE newsroom. A record 600,000 Georgians signed up for Obamacare health coverage for the current plan year. The enrollments are the result of a special sign-up period created by the Biden administration because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Nearly 88,000 Georgians signed up for Obamacare, Obamacare's health plans from February 15th when the special enrollment period started through May 31st. Add to that the roughly 517,000 who picked plans during the normal open enrollment period last year, and more people have signed up for Obamacare than ever before in the state. And that number is likely to grow. That special enrollment period runs through August 15th. In other news, the Georgia Department of Transportation is planning to have a private company invest in new express lanes on I-285 north of Atlanta in exchange for 50 years of collecting tolls. Now, keep in mind that raised a red flag with some state transportation board members. They expressed concern that a private company might set toll prices higher than the public agency that manages them now. So, construction is set to begin in 2023 as part of the Transportation Department's plan to build 120 miles of toll lanes around Atlanta. The state has to receive public input before making a final decision. Speaking of finally... Trey Young and the Atlanta Hawks pull off a miraculous win tonight in Philadelphia. Young goes for 39. Wow, can you believe that? The Atlanta Hawks are now just one win away from going to the Eastern Conference Finals. I admit, I had turned the game off because I thought it was over. I apologize, Atlanta Hawks. That's after an incredible comeback last night in Philadelphia to beat the 76ers. Wow, that was a great game. Also now, a programming note. The Buckhead Cityhood Movement conversation that we expected to air today, it will actually air tomorrow. But don't worry, there's more Closer Look just ahead. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's choice for NPR, as always, I'm Rose Scott. President Joe Biden laid out a goal to have at least 70 percent of all Americans vaccinated by the 4th of July, which is coming up. Now, that 70 percent benchmark does include veterans. And here's what we don't know. How many veterans out there want to get vaccinated, maybe having some challenges when it comes to access? And of course, there are a lot of other optics as well. Now, right here in Georgia, we know that the state is right around 32 percent in terms of those who are fully vaccinated. And that is well below the national average. Back to our nation's veterans, while some veterans are getting vaccinated, some may still be hesitant about getting the vaccine. And joining me now to talk through all of this and the push to get more veterans vaccinated is the Honorable Dennis Richard McDonough, Secretary of Veterans Affairs. Secretary McDonough, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Rose. I'm really, I'm really honored to be with you. What an opportunity. Thank you for it. Let's begin with what you know if you do, the latest data regarding veterans who have been vaccinated. Are you all able to have even a snapshot of the percentage of veterans living here in the United States that are vaccinated? Yeah, so I, the snapshot that we have is the number of veterans 
we have vaccinated. And we think that number is around 3 million. Mm -hmm. Uh, Importantly, we've also vaccinated tens of thousands of our fellow federal government employees. We've we've vaccinated now 70,000 spouses and caregivers of veterans. And we've also, by the way, I learned this morning, vaccinated about a couple of hundred children of Mm -hmm. veterans, which tells you the kinds of people we have authorization to vaccinate. Veterans, spouses, caregivers, and children who are caregivers of of, uh, veterans. So we've done about 3 million. There's about 19 million veterans in the United States. Mm -hmm. So we think a lot of those vets have been vaccinated in other places, not by us. But we also think too many still have not yet been vaccinated. How concerning is that number? If we're talking about 11 million veterans right here in the U.S. and you vaccinated about 3 million, the percentages still are are not in a favorable where you would like them to be, I imagine. I'm not going to rest on this until we've vaccinated uh, every vet who wants to get vaccinated. And so the reason why is uh, we know that health outcomes are better when you're vaccinated. We know that the vaccine is safe and we know that with vaccination comes greater freedom to move, to see families, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, grandsons, granddaughters. Mm -hmm. And so we will keep pushing on this, which is why we're doing as much as we're doing to make vaccine available for our veterans. Before we get to some of those initiatives, I I do want to start with maybe some of the continuing barriers and challenges. I want to start, though, with those veterans living overseas, is the Department of Veteran Affairs, are y'all able to help them at all with getting a vaccine? I know in different parts of the world, access is is going to vary, but can you all help those veterans? You know, we're looking at this very aggressively right now. We've actually heard from veterans in different places. We were in touch with a veteran in Thailand. We're looking very aggressively at expanding the efforts we're doing in Philippines, where we have a lot of veterans, and we also have a veteran uh, clinic. So we are vaccinating uh, hundreds. We're hoping to grow that to thousands of veterans, caregivers, spouses in Philippines. Other veterans, we so far cannot because uh, we don't have facilities Mm -hmm. in those countries where we can administer the vaccine. But what I'd urge veterans who are overseas to do is to be in touch with us. Uh, and they can find out how to get in touch with us at va.gov slash COVID vaccine. Mm-hmm. And there's information there and then also ways for them to get in touch with us. And if we can get to somebody, believe me, we will. Let's now tackle some of those challenges or barriers. And let's begin with mindset Uh, Because as you know, there are many in the nation who do not want to get the vaccine, whether it's something to do with their personal religious belief, not having enough belief in the science. In other words, we could say vaccine hesitancy. Yes. What's the initiative to reaching those veterans? Here we know in Georgia, the push is to have primary care health physicians, those in the community who interact with folks to take the lead on this. Veterans, of course, are part of our community. What initiatives do you think work best for you all to get those veterans vaccinated who have some hesitancy? Yeah, well, let me let me expl- let me uh, mention three things just as illustrative of a larger effort. Our local VA leadership has worked very closely with Stacey Abrams uh, to message our veterans and with uh, former University of Georgia Bulldogs coach uh, Vince Dooley. Mm-hmm to make sure that they're communicating in their channels uh, to people who are hearing them what we can do to make vaccine available to veterans. So that's the first thing we're doing, Mm -hmm. which is communicating uh, through uh, established uh, state figures. And by the way, with Rose Scott (laughs) in uh, Georgia, trusted interlocutors to say, hey, this is available. 
Second is we're, bring, we're bringing vaccine to people. We have mobile units and we move those units around and get them to people. So if there's a question of access, of travel, of wanting to be safe, uh, not be exposed to something, mm-hmm. we'll come to you. Mm-hmm. So again, go to va.gov slash COVID vaccine. Third, we're also contacting every vet that we have in our system. We have 9 million of them, veterans in our system. We're contacting them with texts, letters, emails, phone calls, and we're giving information and we're having our doctors are constantly calling and our nurses are constantly calling veterans to respond to their questions. Because if you have questions of the type that you raised, Rose, about safety, about efficacy, about some things that you've learned on the internet, our doctors, many of them veterans themselves, nurses, many of them veterans themselves are there to answer your questions. And what we find is when people get their questions answered, they feel better about getting the vaccine. If you're just tuning in, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott, and I'm in conversation with U.S. Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Dennis McDonough, and we're talking through the push to get more veterans vaccinated. Now let's focus on another population, and that is the rural communities. And we know that President Biden, part of his wish list, if you will, was everyone to have access to a vaccine within five miles of where they live. Uh, Through your lens, of course, that would include veterans and in obviously in those rural areas and also in our tribal lands as well. Do you all have specific initiatives to reach that population? We do. And we've been doing this all across country. We're doing it in Georgia. Uh, We've done it in Alaska. Uh, We're doing it uh, in the Pacific Islands uh, where we have a lot of our veterans, heroes. Uh, We're doing it in the Southwest Uh, on some of the tribal lands that you're talking about. And that's through these mobile units. Mm -hmm. These mobile units come in two shapes. One is planes. We're flying vaccine into distant communities to make sure that people who are living in isolated areas don't have to leave to come get the vaccine. We'll bring it to them. Mm -hmm. So that's one form of mobile unit. The other form of mobile units are the vans that many of our veterans are familiar with, which are buses, that are basically mobile doctor's offices. Mm -hmm. And not only do we come with the mobile units, but we come with doctors, nurses, pharmacists, so that we can administer the vaccine and answer any question on site. So if you have questions about uh, getting a mobile unit near you, all you have to do is go to va.gov slash COVID vaccine And all your questions can be answered there, and you can get in touch with us there. And we'll react to what your specific needs are. Coming into the segment, we talked about that 70%, that benchmark that President Biden talked about in terms of vaccinating Americans. Is there a benchmark for you all in terms of our nation's veterans that you think this is a great target range for us? What is it? Yeah, you know, we have a saying around here on Care for Our Veterans, which is, Uh, we're going to serve them as well as they've served us. So what we're going to do is we're going to maintain this vaccine safely, and we're going to do everything to get to every single veteran who wants it. And I won't stop our docs, our nurses, our pharmacists, our schedulers will not stop until we've done that. And so, uh, so my answer to that, Rose, is acceptable level for me is 100% of our veterans. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we're going to keep going at it until we get that done. Secretary McDonough, as you know, the VA system nationwide has had some longstanding challenges, including a a backlog of wait times and outdated infrastructure in terms of uh, records and so forth. And to be fair, we should note there have been some overhauls, some achievements. As you come into this role, what are your top priorities for the Department of Veteran Affairs? Yeah, I've got three of them. Number one, as the president said, you, uh, I, I want you to be the nation's number one advocate for veterans. And so that's what I'm going to do. And that means I'm going to fight like hell for veterans. Two is every decision I make is going to be around the question you just raised, which is how do we get access in a timely matter, in a timely manner for veterans? Mm-hmm. I don't want anybody waiting for care anywhere. And then third is I want to make sure every decision also improves outcomes for veterans. We know that whatever you say about the VA system, 
you talk to a vet, Rose, they'll say that they like the care they get at the VA if they can get in. Mm-hmm. So we have to get them in there. But we also know not only that they like it, but vets in our care fare better. They have better health, health outcomes. They have better economic outcomes over time. And so my commitment is to fight like hell for vets, to ensure timely access for vets, and then to ensure that that access means improved outcomes for them. All of that is wrapped under what I just said, which is mm-hmm. we are going to fight as hard for them as your brothers have fought for us. And, Mr. Secretary, and that's what we owe them. And Mr. Secretary, what about those veterans that we can't see, that we can't reach right now due to perhaps being unsheltered or, or being homeless? Also, mental health access. Having a backlog of a wait time to see someone, that just doesn't work. So that's exactly right. The prior, exactly right. Yeah. Okay. That's the right, that's the right question. And what I'd say in, in the first instance is this, you're going to see people who you don't know are vets Mm -hmm. because our vets are everywhere. They're leaders in our community. They're on every, uh, every effort that you see in this country. So we, we have 19 million vets who have pledged to do everything, you know, sacrifice everything for us. We got to do that for them. So then let's go find them on homeless vets. The president has proposed almost $500 million increase this year in our investments in homeless vets. In the last 10 years, going back to 2010, we've reduced the number of homeless vets by half, Mm -hmm. and we've kept 850,000 vets and family members in their homes in a time of crisis. So part of homelessness is preventing homelessness in the first instance. So we're doing a good job there on mental health. The president is asking, just asked, just got uh, $17 billion extra dollars for health care in the VA system. He's asking for about a 10% increase in our budget next year. A lot of that is going to hiring additional health care professionals so that we can get vets, again, timely access and better outcomes. And we know that when they're in our care roles, they do better. And so we just have to get better at ensuring they get into our care on a timely basis. And then finally, again, for someone who may have joined us late, you all say if you are a veteran, if you are a caregiver, if you are a spouse, if you are a, a, a child, you are eligible to also get the vaccine in the sense, exactly at the same right. time with the vet? Yeah, that's exactly right. We assess in Atlanta that there is 94,630 veterans who are unvaccinated today. And we will vaccinate them. We will vaccinate their spouse. We will vaccinate their caregiver. We will vaccinate their children at the VA medical facilities in Atlanta. All you have to do is go to va.gov slash COVID vaccine, and we'll take it from there. And we really want to get you uh, vaccinated vets. We owe that to you, and we want to get it done. U.S. Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Dennis McDonough. Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good information for our veterans, not only here in Georgia, in the Atlanta area, but throughout the nation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rose. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. <laughs> And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The Dunwoody City Council recently passed the city's new sustainability plan devised by the Dunwoody Sustainability Committee. It's the first revision of the plan since 2014. And joining me now with more is Dunwoody Sustainability Committee Chair, 
Nathan Sparks. Nathan, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here with you, Rose. Thank you for the opportunity. Let's begin here, Nathan, because if you are summarizing the city of Dunwoody's, this overall vision for sustainability, what would entail? What would you say? Well, sustainability is kind of a way of being and a way of life. Um, in, in Dunwoody, we wanted to make sure that we take care of the environment as we take care of each other. Uh, we want to be respectful to uh, one another, and we want to uh, have a thriving c- commerce where everyone likes to live and raise their family and do some good work. And before we get into this new revision of the plan, let me get your thoughts in terms of from a regional standpoint, because you all are part of the Atlanta Regional Commission. How would you assess then the region's approach to sustainability? Because look, every city has a different plan. Every area may have different top priorities. Well, the Atlanta Regional Commission has given us kind of a good template to follow. That They have a green communities program that Dunwoody's been a part of. So they, they outline, you know, several areas um, that we've kind of lined up in five pillars for, for ourselves. Um, you know, so it really is, um, I think, a, a common approach that we can all take. You know, we want to make sure that we're leading in environmental sustainability. Uh, we want to help our, our businesses kind of recognize the importance of their part of that. Um, and yeah, we want to, uh, to make sure our citizens have a good quality of life. And I think the Atlanta Regional Commission and its Green Communities Program gives us a lot of fr- uh, a good framework for all the cities to kind of interconnect and work together. And Nathan, let's get some clarity here because the Sustainability Committee, you all aren't exactly a part of city government. Are- well, the city of Dunwoody formed about 10 years ago. And while we have a city council and a city manager that runs a staff, we have a lot of engaged members of our citizen group. And whether it's from a, an ethics group or whether it's a developmental authority or an, even an art commission, sustainability committee is one of those groups. Mm-hmm. So there's, it's a seven member team. Uh, were selected uh, and kind of can apply to the mayor uh, who appoints us. Uh, but from there, it's really our role to take a look at, you know, the, the policies that we'd like the city to, to create and uh, to then once we have those policies in place to, to make sure the city staff and we as citizens are kind of walking that talk and uh, hold ourselves accountable to those standards of how we'd like to live. Nathan, how diverse is the committee? Because as you know, when you talk about addressing the needs of a community, obviously a community like Dunwoody has a, a different ethnicities and races. And how diverse is this committee? And do you feel like it's diverse enough in being able to meet all the needs and, and concerns of the, the city of Dunwoody as a whole? Well, that's a great question. Uh, right now, it's geographically diverse, but that's not necessarily well represented. We have seven zones. So there's a, a person that's appointed from each one of our seven zones and kind of follow the city council framework. We only have one woman on the committee right now, and we need more women represented for sure. Um, I think we have, you know, one person um, of a non-white ethnicity. So that's not a very good representation because Dunwoody is certainly very diverse racially. Don't believe we have anyone that's living in a multifamily home and a dwelling. And we have a lot of people in Dunwoody that call our city home, who live, you know, in apartments or high rises or whatever it might be, and uh, they need more representation. So how do you approach that? Can you all ask the community what they want to be involved? Can you all form subcommittees? Can you make sure that when you are seeking input, that at least you're getting comment from those groups that are not represented on the committee? <sighs> We certainly can. Our monthly meetings are open to the public and we do have people who come in and make public comment. So that's a one way that they can easily get involved. Uh, But we also are out in city parks at at events and uh, they can come and reach reach to us that way as well. We also have education that we're as a part of our plan and communications to where we want to be active in the community and you know, take, take input. And then I think as we think about even such things as recycling and multifamily uh, developments, uh, what do they need? What, what would they like to have uh, provided uh, by the landlord or the, you know, the property owner? Or is it something that they're uh, wanting to do, you know, with the city and city 
property. So those are some questions that actually the committee needs to wrestle with. And we most certainly need to have the input from everyone in the community. Nathan, let's go over some of these basic goals and objectives of the plan. Make Dunwoody a leader in environmentally environmentally sustainable policies and initiatives that lead to a better quality of life for its citizens and that will raise property values over the long term. Let's talk about this for a moment, Nathan. I think someone listening can understand, obviously, leading to a better quality of life for its citizens, but it's, it's that will raise property values over the long term. How do you see that in, in the intersection of environmentally sustainable well, you know, I, I think someone proposed then, and I could not argue with the idea that we all want to have a few more dollars in our pocket, right? We all want to have a better quality of life, and that comes with living in a place that's desirable to where more people want to be here. So if we have a beautiful landscape that we can go out and enjoy with good connectivity between our neighborhoods, get into the parks, um, you know, be on the roads and, and bicycle, um, you know, have great restaurants to, to, to go to, have wonderful schools that have good grounds and, you know, indoor classrooms versus outdoor classrooms and things like that and work with our, our partners in DeKalb on that. Th that's going to really make, um, you know, our environment, our, yes, our natural environment, but I think our, our social environment uh, more desirable. Um, so, yeah, I think it would also um, lend itself to having I guess, a higher standard of living, if you will. How do you define a higher standard of living? Well, I think that's something that should be about how you, for me personally, it's, a, it's about how I connect with nature. It's about, you know, being able to spend uh, time with my family outdoors. Uh, it's being in community with a diverse set of people. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of ideas, um, you know, need to come into our community for, you um, this new century that we're, you know, a fifth into, you know, what do we want to be? Um, you know, we've been here about 50 years. What do we want to be for the next 50 years? Um, so I think a, a high standard of living is, is one that's uh, diverse, inclusive, and is taking care of the environment for everyone. How do you all see transit and mobility being a part of this as well? I'm thinking about Northridge, which has no sidewalks, uh, <laughs> mm. But I also know that there are bus routes on Northridge. Um, how do you see transit and mobility uh, fitting into this sustainability plan as well for the city of Dunwoody? Well, I mean, we we certainly are looking forward to some of the, the transportation improvements at the top end and, and the completion of those. We've taken the approach that we want to have a complete street where bike lanes are possible, mm -hmm. um, that you know, people hopefully are getting out of motorized vehicles and into a more healthy way of moving around. But obviously mass transit is important and connectivity of our trail systems is important. Mm -hmm. um, there's been some work at the Shambly uh, Sustainability Group or actually their city council where a multimodal approach is kind of taking a look, you know, there. I think those are future ambitions I'd like to see Dunwoody take on to think about how we could get people from MARTA into, um, you know, the Dunwoody Village area, because right now that's, you know, that's walking uh, for the most part or a rideshare kind of a, approach. So um, we've, we've got one business that uh, would like to put bicycles, you know, in those, those parking lots. One of those businesses came to our committee and expressed a little frustration because they couldn't find a vendor, if you will, in a parking lot to give them space next to the MARTA facility. So they let us know about that. So that's something I want to take up and, and help uh, as we implement the plan uh, to have better solutions to get from public transportation into the heart of the city. And Nathan, as we wrap up, you of all people know the importance of involving the community. How do you ensure that everyone will benefit from this plan and there is no group left out? And surely when it comes to sustainability, you understand the importance of equity and inclusion. We have um, events that I think we should leverage, leverage Rose. We, you know, community events like um, we just had a grooving on the green and, and Brook Run. <clears throat> We've got great parks where we have a lot of people um, gather that <clears throat> may be in our, our multifamily homes. And we, we need to engage them and let them know what we're working on so that we can collect their reaction to those plans and give us feedback and, and ideas that would meet their needs. So, um, you know, I'll commit that we need to be 
present and visible so that they know what's going on. One of the things under the education, outreach and wellness is that we wanna have adult and youth programs that help them understand that there's ways to, to be efficient, save money by you know, looking at, I guess the costs within how they live. They can take those needless costs out so that they can have a better quality of life. So what are those things and how can they um, take benefit of uh, best practices and sustainability? So being present and I think asking is going to be a, a key thing. And we can do that inside of our parks where we have education programs. Nathan Sparks is the chair of the City of Dunwoody Sustainability Committee. We've been talking about the committee's new revised plan for sustainability actions and plans for the city of Dunwoody. Nathan, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate a good conversation. Thank you, Rose. I appreciate the opportunity. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Here's the mission. Equip new and veteran teachers with resources, as well as emotional and and instructional support with the goal of retaining educators and creating equitable schools. Here's how, hopefully through Georgia State University's College of Education and Human Development. And they have a program called CREATE. In fact, it's called the CREATE Teacher Residency Program. And it stands for collaboration and reflection to enhance Atlanta teacher effectiveness in a partnership between GSU and Atlanta Public Schools. And joining me now to talk more about the program is Dr. Stephanie Beam Cross, the principal investigator of the Create Teacher Residency Program, and Alexandra James, a recent graduate of Georgia State University's Middle Level Education Program and a rising second year resident in the Create Teacher Residency Program. Dr. Cross and Alexandra, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for having us. Dr. Cross, let's begin with some reflection, as we like to do so often on this program. Through your lens, define educational equity. Oh, sure. Oh, starting with a big one. Um, (laughs) Educational equity. So I think for me, um, equity is not just about equal, um, equal for all, equal curriculum for all. Um, It means really thinking about um, which students um, and youth have been historically um, served and misserved in schools. Um, and thinking about ways to support teachers um, to ensure that all students and, you know, particularly black and brown students have access to really, you know, critical, relevant, engaging uh, curriculum where they can question and really experience, you know, deep joy in schools. And I think historically we have not, um, not all students have had that. Um, And we really need to think about how to change our, uh, you know, training and support of new and experienced educators um, to ensure that um, they really get what they deserve um, in schools from our teachers. Alexandra, what about you? Through your view, define educational equity. Um, yeah, uh, just as Dr. Cross said, educational equity um, is not just simply looking for equality because um, different students need and deserve different things, different attention. Um, so that whether that looks like, um, as Dr. Cross mentioned, the teachers that are in their presence. Um, Teachers should definitely be um, prepared to teach and love on all students um, and should recognize that all students are not all the same. There's no one size fits all formula to teaching at all. Um, Students are individuals and they show up as their whole selves as they should. Um, So their whole selves should be um, educated and taught and cared for as well, so. So based on what you all just said, and when we also hear about what are the core elements of a quality education, particularly for K through 12 public school students, is that the same as how you all define educational equity? Or are we really talking about two different sets of of metrics here? Dr. Cross? Yeah, I think, you know, I think for me, it's really important to support teachers in making sure that students, uh, you know, have access to uh, you know, really engaging and relevant curriculum. Um, they can learn standards and, you know, easily pass those standardized tests that we know are, uh, you know, we have to help them kind of figure out how to navigate and, and pass those tests. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it's about um, helping, uh, making sure that youth see themselves in the curriculum, um, understand, um, you know, their histories, 
uh, understand, uh, you know, resist, uh, you know, struggles and also uh, forms of resistance um, historically. Um, bring in, uh, you know, so not only learning curriculum, but really engaging as, as historians, mathematicians, um, activists who, uh, you know, really want to solve problems in classroom spaces um, and not just, you know, sitting there and, you know, learning and memorizing and regurgitating, but really engaging um, actively in classroom spaces um, and thinking, and also at the same time thinking about um, how uh, their own identities and, and intersecting identities um, you know, impact who they are and how they interact with others and how they're viewed in the world, um, uh, for me, is such an important part of schooling, um, you know, beyond just um, standardized testing. Um, and I think we, uh, in CREATE, we try to really position teachers to think about uh, to think about that and how to bring that into their classroom spaces. That's yeah. a great way, as we segue into the CREATE program, because based on what you said, Dr. Cross, in order for the student to have that type of access and have that opportunity in terms of analysis and, and critical thinking, you have to start with the educator who is mm-hmm. the, the convener of that. So for our yeah. audience, uh, let's dissect then the CREATE program. How long has it been around? Yeah, well, gosh, we started uh, eight or nine years ago. It was, you know, a little baby program that we were piloting with one university program and one one school. And we were really looking for ways for our student teachers to try out some of the you know, problem and project-based curriculum that they were uh, learning at um, university spaces. And the, the principal I was working with at the time, Matt Underwood, uh, was really was looking for ways for his veteran educators to engage more deeply with new teachers um, and become teacher leaders and mentors themselves, um, you know, to support that kind of university to school transition that it, that is, is really sometimes so hard for teachers. Um, but since then, it has grown, um, and we are in 15 schools, uh, 18 schools now within APS, mm-hmm. um, doing work with both new and veteran teachers. And, and we really kind of do this work. Um, there's three components of the residency program. Um, the first one is a, a three-year teacher residency model. Mm-hmm. And the idea there is we support teachers across all three years, their first year, excuse me, their last year in a teacher prep program at Georgia State, and into their first two years of teaching. We have an incredibly um, talented um, team of instructional mentors um, uh, uh, who support residents in years two and three with weekly, um, you know, uh, support in their instruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also actually pair our residents together in their second year of teaching so they can learn from each other. Um, and then we, um, and that also offer, offers them opportunities to continue to step out of the classroom as new teachers to engage in deep professional uh, learning for themselves. So that's kind of our residency program in a nutshell. Um, we also have moved recently to supporting experienced educators in create schools mm-hmm. in the same kind of learning. So engaging in learning about you know self, so how our intersecting identities really impact how we show up in the classroom, but also really continuing to learn about and study um, you know systems, so institutional privilege and oppression, and how that shows uh, you know whiteness shows up in our school spaces, um, and really historical disempowerment of uh, you know students and educators, and then how to push back against that. Um, so lots of week-long, month-long, um, even year-long institutes for experienced educators to engage deeply in that work, in that kind of anti-racist liberatory work, um, and then go back and, and lead that in their schools mm-hmm. to support the new residents and teachers coming in. Um, and then finally, a third goal of the work is to really rethink who does teacher preparation and where it happens. Mm-hmm. So bringing together university faculty, um, uh, district uh, leaders, and school-based teacher educators and now, um, importantly, we're really thinking about bringing in um, community-based organizations um, and com- community activists because I think they are also teacher educators um, and they engage with youth um, in different ways and think differently about how we need um, how we need to support uh, new teachers. Um, and so, all of that learning together means we can rethink how we support teachers in what ways and in what spaces um, to really do some transformational kind of work. Alexandra, let me ask you this: What was the draw? for you with this CREATE program? Well, first and foremost, um, when I entered the Georgia State program in general, I was blown away by how it was so centered and focused on racial equity. Um, That was not what I was expecting at all for an education program. Um, So from that point, when I heard about CREATE, I noticed there was some alignment in that same vision. Um, And I only want to get better at being an abolitionist teacher and an advocate for our historically marginalized black and brown students. So that was the number one draw. And then 
the more they talked about it, I'm like, oh, they're supporting us through every step of the way on this journey. Um, there is going to be support, whether it's check-ins, weekly check-ins with a mentor. There's um, lots of programs where we are doing um, our own work for checking our own biases to make sure that we step into the classroom as um, someone who is fully aware, self-aware of their biases, self-aware of their intersecting identities and are bringing that into the classroom as well. Um, so creates entire model of this gradual release instead of kind of just pushing you out there cold turkey with um, only that academic training mm -hmm. that you would get from a university system. Um, that whole model was kind of, was it was a groundbreaking point for me. Um, plus, in addition to that support, um, Create does help financially support um, new teachers. And that was a big draw because mm -hmm. a lot of us, this is gonna be our first step into this career. We're making this transition. And there is going to be this, this gap where it is hard for us to um, support ourselves and to build our classrooms. And so that financial assistance was just like, it took it a whole nother step of them really, really caring and thinking about all of the elements that a new teacher would have to face and would need to be prepared for. And as someone who will be a new teacher, are you already able to assess that your skill set, based on what you've learned so far with this residency, have you noticed a change and maybe how you would approach when you're in the classroom? And if so, give me an example. Absolutely. Um, before, my big fear, because I was a substitute teacher leading up to this, and I knew that I struggled with classroom management. I'm like, I need to learn how to discipline these kids. I need to learn how to get them to do what I want them to do and create completely flip that. Um, they're like, no, you are not going in like a dictator. You are not going in to be this authoritarian. Um, the way for this classroom management is to build relationships. Mm -hmm. And as simple as that sounds, it was such a groundbreaking way for me to just retrain my mind. If I set up this classroom community and if I really connect with my students as individuals and collectively, then the classroom management becomes kind of like a background factor. It does not become the central focus. Um, making sure that you um, build these students up to become to advocate for themselves and become informed citizens becomes so much easier to do when you're not worried about, oh, let me get control, working, worrying about control of a situation. Because um, they're humans. They are not to be controlled mm -hmm. and demanded to do what you want them to do when you want them to do it. Um, so create completely, first of all, took away that stress that I had about not being able to control a scenario. Um, and they just made me feel more comfortable with really just building those connections and um, you know, showing up in the classroom as an advocate, um, as a guide and not just this kind of overarching figure. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Alexander James, a recent graduate of Georgia State University's middle level education program and a rising second year resident in the Create Teacher Residency Program. And I'm also joined by Dr. Stephanie Bean Cross, the principal investigator of GSU's Create Teacher Residency Program. Dr. Cross, let me ask you this, and I mm -hmm. want to go back to the diversity of your residents so far. How diverse is it in terms of folks of color? Do you also have Latina, uh, Latino, and other people of color involved as well? Yeah, yeah, we absolutely uh, have uh, a very racially diverse um, set of residents, though historically we have had um, most of our teachers of color have identified as, as Black educators. Dr. Cross, here's a question I always ask folks when we talk about initiatives and programs, and that is, assessments and, and how do you gauge the effectiveness of it? Do you talk to principals? Do you talk to students? You get the feedback from those residents in terms of the program and then you all take that feedback and have you had to change or modify any aspect of the program over the years? Yeah, so we do a lot of both formal and informal research on this program um, across the years. Um, formally, we have found uh, with some of our quasi-experimental designs, we have found that um, teachers who enroll uh, in CREATE, um, and in particular Black teachers, are retained at higher levels um, when they engage in this three-year teacher residency program, which is really exciting and really important. Um, but qualitatively, um, yeah, we're digging into why that might be. So we, um, you know, we ask for feedback from residents and principals all the time um, about um, how we can do this work better. Um, in fact, we are, um, Dr. Camille Davis at Georgia State is leading 
um, some really critical research in this area where we use, we use critical uh, race theory and critical whiteness studies to do um, ethnographies of this work. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, digging into, you know, we might be retaining, you know, black teachers, which is really exciting and a goal of our work, but what's really happening behind the scenes in CREATE? Um, and how are we, uh, you know, pushing back against the inequities that we say we want to, or are we perpetuating them in our work? Mm -hmm. And we ha um, have found over the years um, that while we are, as a team of teachers and teacher educators, really committed um, to transparency um, and talking about race and our biases in this work and lifting that up, um, we were doing some things in our um, leadership structures and in our work that was also further perpetuating um, whiteness and um, hierarchy, typical hierarchies of power um, uh, that we were not comfortable with. So that research has really helped us to shift some of our programming um, in, important, in important ways. Which brings me to this, and I, I'm going to ask both of you to weigh in on this, because Dr. Cross, you mentioned critical race theory. What do you make of all the conversation about wanting to ban some school boards, passing resolutions, banning the teaching of critical race theory? Alexandra, you go first. What do you make of that? Yeah, I, I absolutely think it is um, very much a reaction to what organizations like CREATE are doing, um, where they are making it a point to, in, to equip teachers with the tools, to equip their students with the tools to inform themselves and educate themselves and advocate for themselves. Um, I think that it is de definitely deeply rooted in fear, and it's a fear that we've seen over and over and over again. When things start to happen, um, people start to take control of their own education, their own experiences in this country, um, changes are made from up top, um, things happen. Um, and I think that it is absolutely a disservice to all students, not just black and brown students, but all students to not get to know um, the full extent of their history in this country, this country's history, um, and where we can go with the information that we get. Um, I, we had a discussion with um, a group of sixth graders about this bill mm -hmm. they had no idea about. And to just watch them kind of process what that means if, if your school gets defunded for talking about something that's very much um, in, rooted in your history, in your identity, in your very being. Mm -hmm. um, what does that mean? What are they trying to say about me? What is, like these conversations are being had um, and these actions are being noticed for what they are. Mm -hmm. Dr. Cross, what do you think? Yeah, yeah I think um, uh, it's a, t <laughs> I'm very, it's terrible. I'm scared um, of this resolution and what it might mean. Um, we're, as a faculty, we're working to think about ways to really push back. Uh, I was thrilled with Dr. Herring's uh, response uh, to the resolution um, and talking about the importance of, of critical race theory. And even if her teachers are not explicitly teaching it, um, it is an important um, analytical tool for her teachers um, and for others to really use to, um, to examine what's really going on in schools. You know, racism, we know racism is happening and it's really just a tool to allow us to uh, kind of view the world differently and lift up and see uh, where uh, racist uh, and oppressive policies and practices are happening um, uh, and to see it and then to push on it and, and really do better. So um, it is not a, um, a theory to be scared of. It is a theory um, um, that provides us tools and, and new and important lenses, uh, not new, I mean, but lenses with which um, to view the world differently. And we can't do this kind of create teacher residency work without it. Um, and we have, you know, U.S. Department of Ed funded grants, um, you know, that know that we're, we're doing this work and know we are using these critical theories um, um, and have funded it, continue to fund it over these years. So. As, we, as we wrap up, when we started this conversation, I asked you both to define educational equity and you gave your answers. And we know, and Dr. Cross, you know, there have been so many attempts through legislation in years past all types of education reform as it relates to our nation's K-12 public schools. But if there's this movement to focus on the educator, can those wide achievement gaps between certain student groups based on race and socioeconomic levels, can that decrease in a significant time with this focus on the educator and how that leads to equity in education? Alexander, what do you think? I absolutely think so. Um, I think that a lot of times with um, the teaching career, it's very, very easy to fall into how things are in the system in place and not reimagine 
what teaching can look like. It's very easy to fall into these traditional roles and kind of perpetuate these traditional um, discriminatory, whether they're discriminatory or just un underserving practices um, for students. So to educate an educator on how to rethink how they educate is incredibly powerful and how they see their students and how they see, see themselves in the classroom. Um, like I said before, it was completely life-changing for me mm -hmm. to not listen to what I was hearing about needing to have authority all the time and control over students mm -hmm. um, because this is something that is expected in some schools. So to have a teacher reimagine how they want to show up really is um, a great thing for students to see and other teachers. And when you get a group of teachers together who are all thinking outside of the box and really trying to change education as we know it and really love on their students and give them what they need, that is incredibly powerful. And that is, that's a movement, you know, that is a, un, like an unstated movement that is just happening in action. Dr. Cross, I'll give you the last word on that. Yeah, I could not have said it any better than Alex. Uh, I agree. It's I think when teachers can start to um, understand how typical policies and practices and curriculum um, really benefit some students, and that's typically you know white middle class um, cisgender students um, and you know, over over others when they can start to see that and start to see how they are playing into those policies and practices. Um, or not based on their own biases and assumptions, um, then they can start to move differently. They can start to push back on those um, practices um, and really become, you know, Bettina loves um, abolitionist teachers um, who put their lives and their jobs on the line uh, for, for youth. Um, and that'll make a huge difference. Dr. Stephanie Beam Cross, the principal investigator of Georgia State University's Create Teacher Residency Program. Alexandra James, recent graduate of GSU's Middle Level Education Program, rising second year resident in the Create Teacher Residency Program. Thank you both for taking the time. Alexandra, best of luck to you. Do you have a favorite grade or subject that you, you like? Yes, I do, actually. I um, love language arts and social studies. My language arts ends up looking like social studies anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I love seventh grade. People are, they cringe and they shy away from seventh grade. Woo, seventh grade. <laughs> I love them. Thank you both so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so Good much for having us. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to send us your feedback on all the conversations and features you hear on the program. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.